Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who was a star basketball player at every level imaginable. In 1970, he was the number one high school basketball player in the U.S. He would go on to play college ball under legendary coach Lefty Drizel for the University of Maryland from 1971 to 1974. He was also a member of the 1972 U.S. Olympic basketball team that lost a very controversial gold medal game to the Soviet Union. After graduating from Maryland, he was drafted in the first round in the 74 NBA draft by the Buffalo Braves and the first round of the 1974 ABA draft by the Virginia Squires. He signed with the Braves but postponed his early entry into the NBA to, uh, order, in order to attend the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. During his 11-year NBA career, he played for the Braves, the Knicks, the Hawks, and the Washington Bullets before he retired in 1986 to pursue his political career, where he would go on to be serve as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. It's a pleasure to welcome number 52 in the New York Knicks program, the Honorable Tom McMillan to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Tom. Mark, great to be with you this morning. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's all you. It's all your resume. So it's wonderful to have you. So let's go back to February 24th, 1970. You're playing a high school basketball game against Corning East. You score 59 points, which actually outscored the Corning team all by yourself. Those 58, those points gave you 3,384 points, which broke the existing national high school scoring record held at that time by Charlie Boyne, uh, Boyne of Illinois. Your dad, Dr. James McGillan, who was a star in his own right at uh, high school days for Corning Free Academy, was in attendance and part of a post-game celebration. Uh, the game ball was given to you by athletic director Pete Hatch, coach Rich Miller. How big of an influence was your dad on your career path, and what did you learn from your time under Coach Miller? Well, thank you. And, you know, my father was enormous impact on me. He uh, he came from a basketball family. His brother was a very good basketball player at Syracuse. Um, and my dad played basketball, except, you know, he had partial polio and uh, that kind of curtailed his career. And uh, yet he was uh, a big driving force. Remember, my brother Jay had played six years older than me, had played it, you know, was a great high school player, played at Maryland before me. And so he was also an important impetus in my, uh, in my career. And so, you know, no one ever becomes good without having those familial uh, influences. And, and mine was the case. Rich Miller was extremely important. Uh, ironically, he was my basketball coach, but he was my chemistry teacher in high school. I went on to become a chemistry major in college that is no easy major uh, for a basketball player. Uh, they just don't do it anymore because the labs and the demands. But it's so funny that my high school coach was my chemistry teacher. So they that's, all had influence on my life. That's absolutely amazing. What is also amazing that while you're in high school as a 17-year-old, you're the youngest presidential appointee ever to the President's Council on Physical Fitness. How did that even come about, and what's it like at 17 years old to be around the White House and working with President Nixon and the staff at that time? 
Well, it was pretty heady stuff. When I was in high school, I was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. I was the second athlete to be on the cover of, uh, high school athlete to be on the cover of uh, Sports Illustrated. And lo and behold, they saw that. And I had made some political comments in the, uh, in the article. And the White House uh, calls up and asked me to join the council, which was a very prestigious organization. You remember that? John Kennedy and what he made of the president's council. Well, Nixon was carrying that on. Matter of fact, the uh, head of the council, James Lovell, had just, you know, circled and gone to the moon, circled around the moon and had a had a great Apollo mission there. And so it was very, very heady stuff. So one of the reasons why, you know, I ended up going to Maryland was because I thought it'd be a great opportunity to to see really how power works and how our government works. And so, yes, we would go to the White House. Uh, we would have our meetings uh, in the building next to the White House Executive Office building. It was very, it was pretty uh, surreal for, at that point in time, an 18-year-old to to be doing that. I, today, I still think I'm the youngest presidential appointee ever. I don't think anybody's ever been younger than 17 appointed to a president, presidential commission. So, you know, maybe I have you to blame for those horrific ropes we had to climb for the, the fitness test back in elementary school. You do. Uh, <laughs> it was a chicken fat exercise record. That was the one. Right. Yes. So we mentioned in the open how you're heavily recruited at high school and you're surely one of the biggest recruiting candidate catches early on in Coach uh, Drysdale's career at Maryland. Rival coaches, Dean Smith of University of North Carolina and John Wooden of UCLA were also after you. You mentioned your brother, Jay, and the fact that he played. How much did that factor into your choice to go to Maryland, and why why choose Maryland over those other schools? I mean, it's another great question. You know, originally, I had committed to North Carolina. I thought the world, Dean Smith. Uh, I had a relationship with the University of Virginia coach who had coached in my hometown in Mansfield. So I had a lot of family connections throughout all this. And, of course, my brother was at Maryland. Uh, at that point, he was just starting um, a dental and medical school. Um, but ultimately, I went to Maryland uh, for three reasons. Number one was my father was ill, and he really wanted to see me play. And so he saw all, you know almost all my home games when I went to Maryland. He drove he drove down from Mansfield, which is four or five hour drive, and uh, and then he died my senior year. So he saw. A, great deal of my games that would have been difficult in North Carolina and by the way Dean Smith understood that the second reason the second reason I the second reason I uh sorry the second reason I uh mentioned was the uh was the fact that uh, I wanted to be near Washington I thought it'd be interesting to be near the corridors of, of power and all that and and the third reason was Maryland did not ha have a great pro program. I mean, until Lefty got there, they were kind of doldrums. So I thought I would get more satisfaction out of really building a program and creating it than just going to another program and perpetuating a tra tradition. So, but ultimately, it was my father's illness that drove me to Maryland. And I don't want to finish Coach Giselle, who was you know, a great factor as well. But those were the three big factors. So two other players of note on those Maryland teams were John Lucas, went on to a pretty good NBA career as a player and a coach, and Len Elmore, good NBA career, got a law degree and dabbles now as a college basketball television analyst. What do you remember 
about the dynamics of that team and the effort to prove that Maryland belonged in the same conversation with UCLA and UNC? It was a very uh, interesting team. We got along real well. You know, Wesley was a very smart, uh, talented uh, individual. Uh, his teammate, Jap Trimble, also played at Power Memorial in New York. So that was my teammate, I should say our teammate. And uh, we had a pretty close-knit team. And we we went out to UCLA, our first game of my senior year, and, and we lost by uh, – you know, a, a point to, to UCLA. They hadn't lost 78 games out there. We had the ball. We should have scored at the end. Uh, and they were right up there at the top. And then, of course, we had to play state, North Carolina State, down in North Carolina. All the tournaments for North Carolina, everything was North Carolina centric. So we were at a disadvantage. And then we lost that tournament. It's so different than today. That was it. Even though we were number one, two, or three in the country, uh, you lose your conference tournament, you didn't go on. You didn't get a second chance like today. You can lose your tournament and still go on and win the, the national title. Um, University of Maryland won a national title, but they actually lost in the ACC. So having that second chance was very important. And by the way, they changed the rules after that. Um, if you recall back in, we won the NIT my sophomore year, there were only 16 teams in the NIT. We just sailed right through that. Uh, in, in the NCAA, I think there was only 25. For both tournaments altogether, there were only 41 teams compared to 68 today. So in many respects, it was uh, much more difficult to get into the playoffs when I played than it, uh, than it is today. So, so let's fast forward to 72. You're coming off of that sophomore year where you are the MVP in that NIT as well, making the all NIT team, the all Atlantic coast conference team. You won the Helms all American trophy as well. You barely have time to unpack all those trophies and you head off to the Olympic tryouts in Colorado Springs. What do you recall about the first day of the Olympic tryouts and your first interaction with coach Hank Iba? We didn't have a lot of interaction with Coach Ivan until the trials were over and the team was selected. Initially, I wasn't selected, and then I ended up joining the team after Splen Nader uh, was, uh, decided to go home. We trained in Pearl Harbor at this uh, naval base, and it was, it was very rudimentary. And I recall we had three, day, three practices a day. It was brutal. I mean, Hank Iba was old school at the, you know, to the extreme, and – that was a very difficult uh, training camp. Uh, I do have memories of going and seeing uh, in the monument at Pearl Harbor, but we didn't have much time for uh, recreation or anything else. We were all basketball. And here's the reason. We were going to go play internationally against teams that had been together for years, and we were going to only have six or eight exhibition games. We didn't have a lot of warm-up to put a team together to go over and play against some of the best teams in the world. So it was very arduous. We worked very hard and uh, it was, it was pretty tough conditions too. I don't even think we've had air conditioning. I mean, it was really hot and not, not hospitable for training. I can tell you this, that uh, a lot of the NBA players would never have gone through this, but here we got, we get through it and, um, we go on this uh, exhibition schedule and then we go to Germany. Uh, so it was very abbreviated. 
we didn't have a lot of time to put a team together. And, and Hank, Hank Iba was a real traditionalist. Uh, he required you to throw the ball around three or four times before you ever took a shot. And that was counters to some of the instincts of a lot of our players who, if you look at the NBA today, that's that, that, that rule would never be observed. I mean, they don't, they take the first shot they can get. And that's how American basketball, really basketball around the world has evolved. But back in his day, you had to be very disciplined and methodical and so forth. And that was really counter to the abilities of a lot of our, of my teammates. Interesting. So this month marks the 50th anniversary of the final basketball game of the 72 Olympics, a game that's become one of the most controversial events in Olympic history. Team USA losing for the first time in the summer games competition, ending their 63-game winning streak, a streak that actually began in 1936. The final three seconds of that game is repeated three times until the Soviet team finally comes out on top. The result of that game is disputed to this day. So walk us through your recollections of what must have been one of the most chaotic endings to any game you've ever been involved with. As additionally, you're the player chosen to defend the inbound pass, or in this case, the inbound passes. It was a comedy of errors. I mean, just error after error. Uh, Doug Collins gets fouled, I mean, brutally fouled, and he gets up and hits two of the most pressurized free throws uh, ever in the history of sports, in history of basketball. And he hits those, and while he's shooting his second one, a horn goes off. Well, once that ball was in the air, that's a live ball. That game was continuing to play, even though the Soviets were trying to get a timeout. Uh, they took the ball in. I was guarding the ball. They went up the sideline, and then the Soviet team rushed on the court and stopped the play after two seconds, which would be a technical foul in any in any basketball game in the world. I mean, it's just outrageous that they would come out on the floor and stop the game because they didn't get a timeout. Well, that that falls on them, not for them to stop the game. So they stopped the game, with, and there's one second left, and this official comes down from stands. He's like the commissioner of the NBA. He's the commissioner of international basketball. He said, no, no, no. We got to reset this clock back to th three seconds. So we go down to the, to the end of the floor again. Uh, and uh, they throw the ball in a, a longer pass. And again, they fail to score and, and looks like we've won the game 50 to 49. And, what happened was the score table forgot to set the clock. So, uh, again, it was clearly that time had run out. And if you go back, they should have only had one second at best. It began with three, and then the score clock wasn't set. So they once again go back and set the clock at three seconds. But, but this time they're making substitutions. They're, they put a guy in who's a good passer that they should never have had a timeout. There was no timeout registered for them to make a substitution. Again, that's kind of violation of international rules. This time I'm guarding the ball and this Romanian official who didn't speak English pointing at my feet to get back. And I, I couldn't exactly entertain a dialogue at this point in time. Uh, this, this game was on world television. He's pointing at my feet. Under international rules, 
the player with the ball had to stick. As long as they could step back, I didn't have to move. And so I don't know why he's pointing at my feet. I'm clearly behind the line, but he's doing that. So I back off. I obviously don't want to get a technical. And that gives the guy a clear path to throw it down to uh, this player, Bailoff, who caught it and scored. Interestingly, if you look at the film, you'll see that the passer stepped over the line, too, when he made that pass. So, as I said, it was a comedy of errors. It just, you couldn't, you couldn't recreate it if you wanted to. It was just so, so comical. And the irony of that was we refused to accept the silver medals and uh, the sanctimonious International Olympic Committee. I, I tried to get the medals back into a museum in the United States. They're sitting in a vault in Switzerland. And they keep saying, no, 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 you all have to accept them. And the irony, the Athletic reported uh, last week that, They've lost five of the medals. One of them, they think, is in the hands of a sort of a Nazi-leaning German and or Nazi-affiliated uh, German. So you couldn't make this stuff up if you were writing a, uh, a movie. You know, several times over the past 50 years, the team's gotten together and they've voted once again not to accept the medals. And you, at one point, tried to get co-gold medals awarded has happened to figure skin a few years ago. Why, after half a century, do you think the feelings among this team are so strong about that? It's it's a good question. Uh, I've talked to a lot of my teammates about it. The fact that uh, you know those medals are going to be sitting in a Swiss in a Swiss vault. Oh, that's what we thought they were. There's only seven of them sitting in a vault now. Five of them are lost. I mean, so ironic. Uh, what I said to my teammates was maybe we should just accept them and then reject them and give them to the Naismith Museum or the Smithsonian, just reject them in our gift, but not let them sit over there in Switzerland. I mean, in a way, that's letting the International Olympic Committee off the hook here. Um, but you know, I'm one of, 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 of 12 players. Two of our players have passed, um, unfortunately. And I think this anniversary is a big one because the 60th, less, few of us will be even around then. So I just thought it was a moment to do something. But our teammates, if we ever can get together again, I think we'll talk about it. Uh, and um, But right now, some of them are pretty, pretty strong that they don't want those medals. And the irony is that five of them are lost. I mean, if, even if we asked for them, they could recreate them. They have the molds. That's what they did with Jim Thorpe's. They don't have his original medals. They had to recreate his medals. But I'm hopeful that um, someday this will this will have a happy ending. You, know, you take a look again. Lots of things have happened in the last fifty years, and I wonder if a series, as such a series of horrendous decisions, could occur today with all the events televised live. And especially with players and coaches less nationalistic because they play against each other in the NBA and assortment of foreign leagues. What do you think about the difference now and then what this could happen now because of the changes in the composition of players in the league? This game was right in the middle of the Cold War. I always said that Brezhnev and Nixon could have just arm wrestled it. Um, it was all it was a comedy of errors in our game. And then it went to a, uh, an appeal the next day. Howard Cosell is arguing our case 
But it was decided three Eastern Bloc countries to two Western Bloc. It was a 3-2 Cold War decision. And now we fast forward 50 years. Here we are in another Cold War with Russia. You think about the poignancy of Ukraine and the and what the Russians are doing there. And it brings back really, uh, it brings back memories more profound at this point than ever before. I would say that's ironic that the Russians had a film of this, a movie called The Golden Pass, which is, I think, the all-time selling movie of all time in, in, in Russia. And they talk about how they beat the Americans and we were up for the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame as a team last year, and we didn't, uh, we didn't, we didn't get selected. But it, it goes to show you the, the Russians are uh, making this one of the high moments of their sort of their national history, and we kind of forget about it here in the states, uh, even though that it's a it's a poignant reminder of how the Russians have cheated uh, for years and years, whether it's the doping cases, whatever. Ukraine, it's uh, it's uh, endemic, and and it's so interesting that uh, Americans just tend to forget there is a, clearly a recency bias. That, you know, if it's not recent, it doesn't count. So I'm always happy to see people like Jim Thorpe get honored uh, retrospectively like that because it does give me faith that people people shouldn't forget because there's a lot there's a lot of history in understanding uh, the events of what happened. It's interesting you bring that up because that controversial game was just one of the moments remembered for those games. Um, just days before that gold medal game was played, the Palestinian terrorists stormed the Olympic Village and took members of the Israeli team hostage, which ultimately resulted in nine Israeli athletes and two coaches being killed. Uh, that each and every year um, is commemorated at the beginning of the Maccabi Games. Um what was the feeling in the village? Um, and do you remember what you were feeling as this was unfolding? Well, we were shell-shocked. We could walk over and see the terrorists on the balcony. There was also a fear factor. Uh, no one had understood what terrorism was. It wasn't a common, a common thing back then. Today, we're much more attuned to it. Back then, this was new. No one was aware of it. And of all places to storm an Olympic village. Uh, and you would see these uh, policemen in sweatsuits running around with machine guns and talking about there could be bombs in the village. It was pretty, it was pretty uh, surreal. And then we had to go practice. I mean, we had our game five days later. So we had to get on a bus in the midst of all this and go to practice, come back. And then that night, uh, you know, all the athletes were murdered as they were leaving as they were leaving the village, uh, they tried to move them out, and then the Palestinians just uh, ended up killing them all. So you, you finish out your collegiate career, and as we mentioned, you drafted the ninth pick in the first round of the 74 NBA draft by the Braves, first round of the ABA draft by the Squires. You sign with the Braves, but you postpone your entry into the NBA in order to attend the University of Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. So I read your book, um, Out of Bounds, and forgive me, this was probably about 15 years ago. Um, and I know from the book that Bill Bradley was one of your heroes, sort of a, a role model to you. How much did that factor into the decision to take a Rhodes Scholarship instead of going directly into the NBA? It was hugely significant. Uh, Bill and I, uh, I had known Bill, and, and he was uh, an idol of mine. I, 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 I 
liked his balance of, uh, as a scholar and as an athlete. And when he got drafted by the Knicks, you know, he went over there for two years. Now he played basketball a few games in Italy. Um, and then he came back for the Knicks, but it took him a while to get it because it was two years away at Oxford. I ended up going over there for one year and I played, uh, I think 50, 60 games in Italy. I commuted all, oftentimes twice a week to, to Italy. And I, I played in a very competitive league. And then my attorney came over and said, Tom, you have to come back because the ABA and NBA is going to merge. It's going to cost you a lot of money if you don't have the bargaining power. And I said, I don't want to give up my Rhodes scholarship. So I went to see the, they call it the warden of Rhodes House. I said, look, I want to go back to Oxford in the summers. When I play in the NBA, I'll fly back and go to Oxford. And uh, he said, absolutely not. We, we don't make those exceptions. And then I found out that Cecil Rhodes, who founded the Rhodes Scholarship, this wealthy industrialist, had gone to Oxford only in the summers. And so I took that back to the warden, and they allowed me to do it. So after, after every NBA season for three years, I flew to Oxford in the summer and finished my degree. So I got my degree, and uh, that was how I completed it. But I was, only, I was only able to spend one full year at Oxford while Bill spent two. It's amazing, uh, you know, going back and forth to two different countries uh, while going to, to Oxford. You know, people talk about the student athletes here. That had to be incredible. Well, it wasn't just I played in Tel Aviv. I'd get out of class and fly to <laughs> Tel Aviv, Naples. Uh, I played in um, France. I played in, um, in, in St. Petersburg, Leningrad. I played, I played all over the place. Uh, and I oftentimes flew all night long, twice a week. So I didn't get sleep two nights a week. But uh, yeah, that's how I that's how I that's how I got back to Oxford and and was able to complete my studies. So yes, it, you know it's it's hard enough being a student athlete when you're in one location. Doing it in two different continents may, is a little is a little dicey. Yeah, I would say so. So you tr transition into the NBA. You struggle a bit in your rookie year. 20 games into your second season, December 9th, 1976, you traded by the Buffalo Braves, along with Bob McAdoo to the Knicks for John Gianelli and Cash. So now you're playing with your idol and role model, Bill Bradley, the only two road scholars in pro basketball now playing on the same team. Throw in the fact Phil Jackson who also is a very intelligent player as well. Looking back at those 56 games with the Knicks, what's your fondest memories? Additionally, you know, sometimes when we get to spend excessive time with our idols, um, the perception of them changes, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the not so better. So what was it like playing with Bill as well? Well, it was a great thrill for me to be able to play on the Knicks. It's a, it's a great stage. Um, you know, we weren't – we had a lot of talent. I mean, this was a very – on paper, a talented team. Not only did we have Spencer Haywood and Lonnie Sheld and Jim McMillan and Butch Beard and uh, Dean Memminger, I could go down the list. It was Clyde, Clyde Frazier, uh, Earl Monroe. It was on paper, a very talented team, but it was an older team. So they were, so they were, as they say, in the denouement, they were kind of, kind of phasing down. So we weren't really that good. Um, but, you know, Red was great to play for, Red Holtzman. And uh, Bill was very disciplined. I mean, I saw a lot of things he did. He used his time on the road very constructively. When he was traveling, he was reading. He was meeting people. He was doing all the things. So that year playing with Bill was very 
helpful to me because I saw the advantages, you know, when you travel to build your network of contacts to, to study and not waste your time on the road. So it was actually a, a very, uh, very meaningful experience to, to play with him for a year. I remember that first game in the garden. I just landed from Buffalo. I didn't know the plays at all. Red, Red spent 15 minutes going over the place. I went out there. I think that first game I had like 19 points and 18 rebounds in Madison Square Garden. I remember it was just extraordinary. And uh, I was playing with Bill, who I'd never played with before, without even knowing the play. So we were kind of just trying to – I was trying to – get along on the court without having a lot, a lot of time to know the plays. So you end up your trading again to Atlanta about a year later. After one of the times you traded, I think it may be when you traded to the Knicks, maybe afterward, you quoted in the New York Times article saying, quote, a pro athlete is a puppeteer in a puppeteer's world. I try to do what I can. As free agency has changed the landscape of sports, you still feel that way or has the dynamics changed? Well, no, it's still that way. But in my case, the trades that I made, that my career was in many respects sort of a Cinderella because I was drafted by Paul Snyder, the Buffalo Braves. He was from my hometown in Mansfield. Then I go to the Knicks and get to play with Bill Bradley and Phil Jackson. Then I get to go to Atlanta and I get to be with Ted Turner on the ground floor of his burgeoning empire. And Ted was so good to me. And I got into cellular telephone through, I was an early investor in cellular. I made a lot of money. Uh, and then one day after six years in Atlanta, I said to Ted, would you trade me to Washington so I could run for Congress? And he trades me to Washington so I could run for Congress. I mean, it's unheard of. And then, of course, I go to Washington uh, where I have, you know, I played the end my last year. I'm player of the week for a week and uh, I'm uh, I'm a candidate for Congress while I'm playing that last year. So I, no one will ever do that again. I ran for Congress while I was still in the NBA. I ended up leaving the NBA in May. My primary was in May, and I was elected in November. So it was a serendipity, all the places that I ended up, because they all kind of fit into a different life's pattern, um, you know, going to New York, going to Atlanta, going to Washington. You say that, but you know, unfortunately, in this country, you could run for president while you have a TV series going on. But we won't even get into that. Yeah. Um, your post-playing accomplishments have been just as impressive as impressive as your on-court achievements. We mentioned your time as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Maryland's Fourth District, since uh, 2015. You've been the chief executive officer of the Lead One Association, which represents the athletic directors' programs of the football bowl subdivision encompasses 42 states, 55,000 student-athletes, and more than 25,000 athletic administrators. Can you tell our audience a bit about the important work that Lead One does? You said what we do. We represent the largest programs in the country and through their athletic directors, and we work with them on all their policy issues, uh, whether it's name, image, and likeness, transfers, paying student-athletes, uh, how you're going to govern football, all these big issues. We work with these ADs to try to come up with consensus. Remember, uh, in our F F football bowl subdivision, there are 10 conferences. And rarely do those conferences kind of get together and say, what are we going to do about this or that? Uh, lead one's a forum for all of them to get together and talk about these critical issues that are facing college sports. 
Tom, I have to thank you so much for your time tonight, as well as, you know, your time here with the Knicks. I was a huge fan back in the day, as was AJ. You know, we're both lifelong Knicks fans. Kind of tough, but we still are. Um, and then additionally, all the great work that you're doing on behalf of amateur athletes. Uh, just have to thank you so much for that. Well, it's been fun to chat with you and bring back all these memories and love to do it again sometime. We will take you up on it because we didn't even get into half of your career for sure. So we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, best wishes to all of you. And thank you so much. The Honorable Tom McMillan, former collegiate NBA star, U.S. Olympian, former member of the House of Representatives and CEO of the Lead One Association.